Well, good morning, St. Pete's. My name is Phil Pearson. I'm the ministry director and part of our pastoral and preaching team, and it's a joy to be with you. I have to be honest, I'm a little more nervous than normal this week because I have to follow Bernice from last week. If you are here, wow. Uh, definitely go back, just watch that part. You'll have everything that you need to know. Um, but I want to start off with a few questions, if you would let me. What does it feel like? What does it feel like to you? What do you do when everything in life is changing? What things do you do when everything around you or you feel like you are changing? What grounds your identity through seasons of upheaval, shifting, or changing life? When you're moving from place to place, going between jobs or between relationships or entering into a new stage. When it feels like your identity is shifting. Those questions are always a little tricky. And there's an ancient philosophical paradise paradox posed by the Greek philosophers called the ship of Theseus. And the story is of the first king of Athens who had set sail from Athens to Delos aboard this ship. And out of commemoration for his sailing and his victory, every year for decades, they would sail that ship from Athens to Delos. And every year, wear and tear would begin to take over the ship. The boards would rot, the nails would be replaced, the mast cracked during a storm, The sails needed to be sewed again and again and again and then replaced. And the Greek philosophers, they took this little story and they asked the question, where does identity lie? Over the decades, maybe even centuries, if everything on that ship changed, is it still still the original ship that set sail? When an object has its parts replaced, does it fundamentally cease to be the same thing it once was, or does it become something else entirely along the way? Is identity intrinsic based on the sum of its parts? And in our own lives, we may feel like we have ship of Theseus moments, times when great change has occurred in our life, and we ask the age-old question, who am I? What makes me, me? What parts of me stay the same when everything else changes? And in our church, we're in the middle of a ship of Theseus moment, right? Things are changing. People are leaving, coming, and going. Being in Vancouver, we're such a transient church that this is going to plague us forever. So during these seasons of great upheaval and change, I found that it's always best to lean into the wisdom of family and friends and loved ones who can speak words of truth over you, truth over me, who know my identity intrinsically and can speak into that people that can anchor your identity. That's what I want to do over the next eight weeks here at St. Pete's. I want us to listen to the words of the Apostle Paul as he writes a letter to the church in Philippi and seeks to shape and form and ground their identity. Over the next eight weeks, we're going to begin a journey through the book of Philippians, and it's going to take two parts. The first we're calling Stumbling Towards Grace, and the second we're calling Welcome to Our Heart. And they're all about identity formation. What makes us us? Who are we regardless of the ways the world is changing around us? And we're seeking to listen to Paul and let his words of joy, grace, and love form us as it did that community uh, 2,000 years ago. How does that sound? You're with me? Okay, we're getting feedback. We're going somewhere. But during this, we want to experience God's grace, his goodness, his love, and let it ground our identity in seasons of upheaval. And then we want to ultimately take that goodness and share it to the city around us. 
But today, we're going to start with the very beginning, Paul's greetings and salutations to the church in Philippi. And I want to explore three things. We want to explore how God's goodness affects sinners to become saints like you and I. We want to be invited to lean into the work that God is doing in us. And then we want Paul to encourage us to know that these present moments of trials and tribulations are actually the gospel working itself out in our lives and in our city. So let me read Philippians 1 verse 12 one more time, or 1 verse 1 to 12 one more time. I forgot my Bible, but I'll read it from my iPad, which seems a little sacrilegious, but the words are the same. (laughs) Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you in all my prayers for all of you. I always pray with joy because of your, part, because of your partnership in the gospel from this day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart. And whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. And as a result, it has become clear through the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. This is the word of the Lord. Well... So let's start off with sinners and saints, and let's kick in right to the very first verse. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. I always love that opening because it reminds me of when my dad calls me. My dad is always driving whenever he calls me. He refuses to sit in the house when he calls me. But he picks up the phone and goes, hey, Phil, it's Kevin, your father. (laughs) And I know because I have caller ID, but I respond in kind, and I say, hey, dad, it's Phil, your youngest and favorite son. And I respond, and this is what Paul is doing. He's saying, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Paul is the founder of this church in Philippi, and he had planted the church about 10 years prior. And he's writing with his now right-hand man, Timothy, and they serve Jesus. They provide leadership and guidance to many churches across the Roman Empire. And what he does not say, because he knows that the church of Philippi knows him, is, I'm writing to you from prison, because he received a gift from Philippi while in prison. And so he's actually responding to this gift that he received. But being like my dad, he makes sure that they know who he's writing to. So he says, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi. And that's a big opening. That's a, that's a love letter we're actually listening into, right? Because this is not simply to the Christians in Philippi or to the church in Philippi. It's something much more meaningful and beautiful to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus. And this is actually the way that Paul starts, I think, eight out of 11 of his epistles. He starts off, to all God's holy people. He's writing to dear loved ones that he holds up and he's speaking 
deep words of truth over with the goal that they believe it. But many might not. So he's going to use these words to shape and form them through his letter. He starts with that beautiful phrase, to all God's holy people. Holy people, from the Greek, is translated from the word hegios, which just looks beautiful, as Greek always does. And it's translated most often to holy people, or depending on your translation, you might see it as saints. And saints, today, carries a little bit of baggage to us. Um, we may think more like our Catholic brothers and sisters when we hear saints to think of someone that's extremely elevated by the church due to great works or miracles. One Catholic writer, after Mother Teresa's canonization to the sainthood in the Catholic Church in 2016, wrote it this way. They said, anyone can be a saint in the Roman Catholic Church, but this status is only granted after death. Furthermore, to achieve this beatified status, one must lead a heroically virtuous life in the strictest accord with the teachings of the church, embracing charity, faith, hope, and other virtues. One must also perform miracles during their life and either be martyred in the name of their religion or be responsible for miracles posthumous. Does anyone here in the, in the, the room fit that? I know I don't. And this is a really tall order when we look at this. A person who leads a heroically virtuous life, embracing charity, faith, hope, and other virtues, performed miracles. And I'm sure kind of images of stained glass windows or stories of saints may pop up in our mind. And so we may be thinking, oh, Paul's writing to this. But, I mean, there's a caveat because it also requires a state of which none of the Church of Philippi then and us in this room are, being dead. So Paul clearly has something else in mind when talking about saints. People are not living a heroically virtuous life or doing miracles, so he's saying something else. He's using it, of course, in a bit of a different way. And he's using this term hagios in a similar way to how it would have been used in the Old Testament, though the Old Testament is in Hebrew and would have been using a different term. He uses holy people in the exact same way as God did in the book of Exodus. The only other thing, aside from God, that is primarily referred to as holy is the nation of Israel. They are a holy nation, set apart by God, and it doesn't mean good or pure or blameless or upright or just or proper or one who wears robes. No. Just read through Israel's history. Read through the book of Judges, as my wife and I did this past month, and you will see not a good list of holy people. You will see violence and sin pervade all of their life, and yet Israel keeps being called holy people. Holy, hegios, means set apart. Set apart by God to bless the world, and they are holy by God's choice, not theirs. It is brought on to them, not by themselves. You could say that holy is much like that special bottle of whiskey that you keep for certain occasions, or the special china that you keep for when I mean, none of us in Vancouver have space for special china, but if you go to a larger place, you'll find that cabinet of special china. Holy china, you might say. And Paul uses this word in the same way, holy, set apart. It's not their actions that are making them holy. It's not living a virtuous life that sets them apart. It's God who makes them holy. And he says, you are holy in Christ Jesus. It's not perfect people that this letter is dedicated to. It's not good people who do everything right or know their Bibles. It is to a group of messed up, broken people that are limping and failing along the way, but they are sinners set apart by God. And Paul places this 
holy people in Christ Jesus as their identifying marker before their geographical location because to him the geographical location doesn't matter. And it actually goes back to the ship of Theseus in an interesting way because the question of identity in the ship of Theseus is about the question of is identity intrinsic? But 2,000 years later, we're still talking about this philosophical paradise, paradox, I keep saying paradise, paradox, but we call it the ship of Theseus. Theseus is the one who gives the ship the identity regardless of the pieces in play. And in the same way, Paul is saying this about the church in Philippi and the church today. They are holy people, not because of anything we've done, but because who we are in. You and I, St. Peter's, we are holy people, set apart because God loves us. We are in Christ Jesus. And a side note, a few, as I was working through this text, I realized something about my childhood. All my life, I'd always heard that I invite Jesus into my heart. That when you become a Christian, you open up your heart and Jesus moves in. That's never Paul's language. Paul's language is always that we find ourselves in Christ. But that's just a tangent for another day that I'll bring up at some later point. But we are in Christ, not Christ in us in some strange way. We see Paul talk about this again and again. But why does it matter? Well, to be a saint means that we acknowledge our brokenness. The only way to enter into sainthood is to be a sinner. The only way to be a saint is to have first been a sinner. The height restriction to being a Christian is to be a sinner who has experienced grace. And to Paul, saints are a group of people limping, tripping, falling, stumbling towards grace and being caught all along the way. Grace is where these saints are headed. Grace is what catches them. Grace is what leads them. Grace is the free gift the whole time. And that sounds like good news to me. But that's only the beginning. We know who it's to, a group of broken people loved by God. But let's keep on going with Paul's passage. He says, I thank my God every time I remember you in all my prayers. I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from this day, from the first day until now, confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Paul is filled with joy, with love. There is such deep affection for this church they are joining in on the movement of the gospel in beautiful ways. And then Paul drops in this beautiful line. I am confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Christ. Years ago, the very first time I did a road trip um, from Ontario to Vancouver, I think it was about 11 years ago now, and I got in a Toyota Corolla with two other guys, Pat and Pete, and we drove from Toronto or Kitchener-Waterloo all the way to Tofino. And when we would sleep, I would sleep in the back seat coffin style. And then they would trap me with the seats that would just lean back all the way. And it was the worst smelling car you could ever think because we only slept in the car for the entire seven-day drive on the way out. Then we picked up a fourth guy, Pavlin, so four Ps and a Toyota Corolla, driving all the way to Tofino. And along the way, I had in my mind that I wanted to learn to surf at Tofino. I'd never been on a surfboard before, but I was convinced I was going to do it. So we made it to Tofino. I went and rented a surfboard. And as I was leaving, 
the guy was like, have you ever surfed before? I was like, no. He's like, do you have any questions? And I said, well, how do I surf? And he said, just with this look of confusion looking at me, he says, just let the wave do the work. Just let the wave do the work. You're going to be tempted to overwork, to overpaddle. Just let the wave do the work. So I went out into the wide open ocean, abandoned by my three friends who went whale watching instead, and I just went by myself, a lone man surfing. And I completely forgot what the guy had told me. And I, I thought at the time I was a strong swimmer, so I could just completely gassed myself. Every time a wave would come, I would just paddle and thrash about like a person drowning, trying to catch a wave. And after about two hours, another surfer saw how much I was struggling and came up to me, just paddled over and was like, hey man, just let the wave do the work. And I was like, what is happening? But he said it like real surfer-like, so it was wonderful. And so I was like, okay, one time, shame on me, two times is a coincidence, so I'll listen. So I laid on my stomach out in the ocean, and slowly waves would roll under me. And then finally, there was this moment where I was just rolling with a wave, just thinking, hey, let it do the work, gently paddling. And it was like a sea creature swam up below my board, caught it, and began pushing. And I was like, this is what they've been talking about. And I was like flying, it felt like. It was incredible. So I, I popped up onto my feet, and there I was, standing on a surfboard. It was incredible. And then I inevitably thought I probably need to change my footing. I stepped onto the front of the board, nosedived it deep into the wave, crashed, and but then for the next three hours, I figured it out. I could catch a wave. I could let it do the work. And Paul is marking something beautiful and mysterious here in 3 verse 6. And he's hearkening it back to the very beginning of when he planted the church 10 years prior. In Acts 16, there's this beautiful story of when Paul first goes to Philippi and he's trying to spread the word of Jesus. And he goes down to this river to pray, and this woman named Lydia, who is a trader and merchant of purple dye, um, very expensive, a lot of wealth there, she hears what he says. And Luke, the writer of the account, he says this, the Lord opened her heart to heed the words Paul said. Did you catch that? Lydia did very nothing. She's very little. She's almost passive in the moment. But the Lord opens her heart. And to the biblical writers, God is subtly behind the scenes involved, opening her heart to receive the gospel. And this reveals a great truth about how grace and faith work. God is always the initiator. God always starts things. God is the wave pushing. And this is uncomfortable to us because we want to have the feeling of power and independence. We want to be the ones that found God, that called out to him, that started our faith. But to Paul and the biblical writers, none of that is true. God is the initiator of grace and faith in our life. Take a moment. Close your eyes. And ask this question, what is the good work that God has started in your life? 30 seconds of silence. What is the good work that God started in your life, and how did he start it?
to start looking through your story, thinking back to those early days of faith or maybe those recent days of faith, you'll begin noticing God slowly working all around you, pulling the strings, opening up your heart, healing wounds to let you hear. Last week I was reflecting on um, coming to St. Pete's for the first time, and I had come to St. Pete's about six years ago, and I had left a a church in Ontario and, and had gone through quite a hard process of pastoring a church and leaving it, and I remember that all I would do, I'd sit in the back with my feet up, and I refused to stand up during anything. I wouldn't sing, I just sat. And slowly, God was doing the hard work of softening and healing my heart again to receive grace all the more. But it took weeks and weeks and weeks of grace having its effect. Years, you could say, of God working in me. And I'm sure that if I asked that question to each of you individually, we would find a beautiful tapestry of stories in our community of how God has worked in our life how God has opened us up to receive grace upon grace. The first part of the statement is that God starts the good work. He who began a good work, he who opened up your hearts. But there's also a beautiful promise in the second half of the statement. God will bring it to completion. God will bring it to completion on the day of Christ, the day when Christ returns. And that extra line is so important because we may think to ourselves, well, God started in something so good in me, and now it's on me. He lit the flame, and now I have to turn it into a bonfire. He started it, and now I need to carry it. I need to white-knuckle it. I need to be perfect because God loves me. But God started it, and he'll continue to carry it. Theologically, we call this the work of sanctification, the long, slow work of being remade in God's image. And we're going to talk about that more in two weeks. But there's this great freedom that the completion comes on the day of Christ. And that means you will never be perfect in this life. Grace will not find its full work completed in you in this life. It'll be there when Christ returns. And that isn't to free you up to just say, oh, be sinful, but instead to free you up from the demand of being perfect and instead allowing you to lean in to Christ's grace at work in you. Much like surfing where the wave picks us up and pushes us, it also continually pushes us and carries us. We aren't supposed to thrash about trying to work harder than the wave. We ride the wave of grace, we let it carry and lead us. We move with it. Great surfers, they lean into the wave. They let the wave and the momentum carry them. They never do the work on their own. And Paul is speaking these words of life over this church in Philippi, and he says, I'm confident of this, sure of this. I know that God began something beautiful and wonderful in you, and he's the one that will bring it to completion All you need to do is lean in. Let grace have its way and grow in you more and more. A question as you move forward into the week, maybe something to talk about in your community groups over coffee or lunch is this. What would it look like for you and for us as a church to lean into the wave of grace? To let God do the work of grace in us. Not to try to grab it all for ourselves, but to let it move through carry us, and lead us. One final movement, and then we'll go to the prayer. 
Paul keeps going in verse 7. He says this, It is right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have all of you in my heart, whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel. All of you share in God's grace with me. Paul feels right. He feels vindicated to have these feelings of joy over this church that he planted 10 years prior. But then he, he nestles something in there and he says, whether in chains or defending and confirming the gospel. In verse 12, he continues this a little bit more and he says, I want you to know that what has happened has actually served to advance the gospel. As I said at the beginning, Paul is in prison writing this letter. He's stuck 24 hours a day to a Roman guard, unable to go. And this letter is coming as a response to the gift that Philippi has sent him. But what he wanted to be doing, what Paul thought his mission as a disciple, as an apostle of Jesus, was to be planting more, traveling more, tra traveling more, planting more churches, proclaiming the gospel throughout the, Mo the Roman Empire, converting people, changing people's mind, leading them to Jesus. But instead, he's stuck in chains, waiting for a trial that will ultimately end in his death. And this is something so important that needs to be held in tension with his previous words of encouragement about God completing the good work in you and I. Paul understands that the Christian life is not the promise of an easy life or a free ride. And in fact, for him, being a Christian is the very thing that brought him to the moment he's in but he sees something incredible. None of the challenges he's currently facing are a hindrance to the gospel. None of them are antagonistic to the gospel. In fact, they are through this that the gospel is being proclaimed. I am in chains for Christ, he writes. Because of my chains, the gospel is proclaimed without fear. Paul, being a good Jewish learner, he's hearkening back to the story of Joseph. In the Old Testament, in the story of Joseph, his brothers despise him, they fake his death, they sell him into slavery down the river, and Joseph ultimately ends up in prison and through a miraculous series of events becomes the second in charge in Egypt. And through it, he, he saves Egypt and the surrounding area from starvation and famine. And then in chapter 50, verse 20 in Genesis, Joseph proclaims to his brothers, he says, you intended to harm me, but God intended it to accomplish what is now being done for the saving of many lives. You intended to harm me, but God intended it to accomplish good. Paul and Joseph understand something vital, something of how God works that God works all things to his glory. Despite the situation, God is always at work for the good of those he loves and who love him. In an attempt to subdue the gospel being preached, the greatest preacher and defender of the Christian faith is chained to the palace guard 24 hours a day. He has a truly captured audience. And slowly, his message sinks into them. Slowly, the gospel is preached to these guards, and they begin to believe it themselves. The very thing meant to subdue the gospel by the Roman Empire is now the very thing pushing the gospel forward in a way that Paul never could as a free man. Paul, never, Paul would have rather traveled around preaching freely, but instead he's here and the gospel is at work even better than he could have hoped for. 
And this is how we see God work again and again throughout the gospel, throughout the Bible, and most likely through our lives as well. God tends not to work by our plans or our agendas or how we think things should go, but by his plans. Despite the present circumstances, God is at work for the, for the salvation of the world. And that may, this may lead to moments of confusion and discombobulation. We believe with confidence that God is working, but we don't feel it in the moment. But Paul is trying to lead us to this conviction, have confidence, assurance that the situations will not go against the gospel, that the gospel can be preached all the more, not despite them, but because of them. And as Roger said last week, that is good news worth the price of admission, I'd say. Because I feel like I get in the way of the gospel a lot, but that doesn't matter to God because he's going to make sure it's preached. In the middle of this, Paul sneaks a little prayer. And I want this prayer to carry us through the year. I want us to come back to it again and again and again because he says this, I pray that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God that your love may abound more and more. Paul knows how great God works in our lives. He knows God's desire to love us and to share that love with the world around us. And he's inviting the church in Philippi and us today to lean into that love, to let it grow more and more, not force it, but simply let it bubble up and arise. And this is my prayer for us as a church, that our love abounds more and more, that we are filled with the fruit of insight, fruit of righteousness that only comes through Jesus Christ, not for our glory, but to the glory and praise of God. St. Peter's, may you know that you are sinners loved by God. May you know that you are saints, holy people set apart to bless the world around us. May you know that God has started a good work in you, and he will bring it to completion on the day of Christ. And may you proclaim the gospel without fear, regardless of the situation. May our love abound more and more to the glory and praise of God. And with that, let me pray.